Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Brought to you by Penguin. I mean, Mavanwi's catchphrase that people used to shout at me down the street like as if it was completely normal. Her catchphrase was, um, Oh, David Thomas, you could have had a bit of cock there. <laughs> and there's something that you can get away with a lot with a Welsh accent. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin Podcast. Now, this is the place where we take a look into the creative minds of our guests through a collection of objects that they have chosen. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, chatting to people from my home, so do forgive any background noises. Uh, as I always say on this, there's a six-month-old puppy running around and two kids, so it could be a bit noisy at times. I apologise in advance. Now, my guest today is an actor, screenwriter and novelist. She's the co-writer of the BAFTA award-winning Gavin and Stacey and played, of course, the role of the much-loved Anessa. Her debut novel, Never Greener, was a number one Sunday Times bestseller and her second novel, Us Three, has just come out. It's a story about life's complications, the power of friendship and how it defines us all. And today she talks to me down the line from London. It's Ruth Jones. Hello, Ruth. Hello, Nahal. How are you? Uh, good. It's so good to speak to you. Aww. When you have a number one bestseller for your debut <laughs> novel, what pressure does that put on you for the second uh, one? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Oh, do you know what? I didn't really understand how all of that worked, all of the Sunday Times bestseller list. So I was just really excited when it got into the chart. I did, honestly, my expectations were solo so then when it did get to number one I was like this is ridiculous <laughs> and obviously it was a huge compliment I was I was really really touched and thrilled and now I'm just going oh. I, I basically I try not to think in those terms because yeah you just you just can go a bit doolally if you start going, oh, what if, what if, is it going to go there? Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? So I just kind of like take things as they come. <laughs> when you're picking the time span, I mean, it's quite daunting to take mm. decades people's <laughs> lives and now they intertwine. <laughs> you certainly didn't pick an easy way of doing it. Why did you want it to have this expanse of time? this friendship over of these three women? Well, I think, well, first of all, I should say that the reason that I originally wanted to write about lifelong female friendship was because I am of an age now, I'm nearly 54, and I have got friends who I've known since childhood. And I think, you know, not everybody ha has that blessing in their life, but I love the fact that... I've got a friendship that has spanned all these years. I'm a big nostalgia freak and I do have a bit of a tendency to start sentences with, remember when? Oh, do you oh. remember when? <laughs> you know, and like we're 54 now and these friendships, we've gone through so much together. Things like, you know, 18th birthday parties, passing our driving tests, A-levels, uh, going on our first holiday without parents. And then, you know, as time goes on going through the more, the, the, the sadder elements of life, you know, like marriages, yes, but divorce <laughs> often comes yes. further down the road. You know, my friends were all at my wedding, but they were also at my father's funeral. So it's, I think, 
a real privilege to be able to go on your life's journey and share it with people who've known you since you were a child. So I think I wanted to sort of put this into the world of us three to show the scale of their friendship and the magnitude of their connection, I guess. Now, as you know, part of, uh, in fact, a very central part of the Penguin podcast is uh, making sure that uh, amazing creatives such as yourself bring some objects with you that have inspired that process. Now, I know you've got a coffee pot and some trainers. Uh, I'm a trainer collector, so that'd be interesting to know uh, what that's all about. But first, I think this is a first, actually, for any author that I've interviewed. Uh, an entire country you've brought as a <laughs> as an object, um, which, uh, which is uh, ambitious, to say the least. Uh, and uh, I, I guess if I say the country, uh, suddenly, if I asked anyone listening to the podcast right now to guess what country that might be, um, I, I, put them out there, misery, Ruth. What is the, well, what is the country? Yes, I, I've chosen Wales oh. as one of my favourite objects, <laughs> right. uh, as in not the uh, bloody big fishes are Wales, but no. the country Mammals, Wales. of course, not fishes. Yes. Oh, yes, they're not. Yes. But it's just that song, do you know? Wales, Wales, bloody big fishes are Wales. <laughs> it's a, the Mickey tape of the Welsh National Anthem. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, because, you know, well, obviously I am Welsh and yes. Um, yes. I was br- brought up in a, a town, a seaside town called Porthcawl, which is in between Cardiff and Swansea, and my family still live there and I live in Cardiff most of the time, which is, you know, 20 miles away. So and a lot of my creativity, a lot of the characters that I've created especially, have been Welsh. And Wales is incredibly inspiring. The people of Wales are incredibly inspiring. And it's because, and I've said, I have said this before, and I talked to Rob Bryden about it, it's the sense of melodrama that we have as a nation. The way in which a Welsh person, if you ask them a question with a simple yes or no answer, they won't just say yes or no. They go, yes, or no. And I love that. I love that. And it's just the perspectives. I think everybody, wherever they come from, they they have an affection for that, that area and the people, you know, the way they speak. Like, you know, Wales isn't... A town. Wales has got lots of different areas and accents. But essentially for me, it's about the people and the attitude and the humour and um and the heart, the 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 passion of Welsh people and the warmth and the welcome. You really do get a welcome in the hillside. And yeah, I I, I I've created many, many Welsh characters, and so Wales is a huge inspiration to me. I've uh, obviously Nessa is a Welsh character. Yes, who uh, she she's she's in the sort of on the on the sort of the darker side. She's not quite your sing-song <laughs> Swansea accent. She's got she's you're going down badly with Nessa. You've got to be very, very careful. And I mean very careful. There's almost like a bit of darkness there. But then, you know, I, I, Mavanwi, who is in Little Britain, 
although I obviously didn't create her, but to to play her was that, you know, she was terribly um, positive about everything. I mean, Mavanwi's catchphrase that people used to shout at me down the street like as if it was completely normal. Her catchphrase was, um, oh, David Thomas, you could have had a bit of cock there. <laughs> and... There's something that you can get away with a lot with a Welsh accent if you say yeah. it brightly yeah. enough. It's like Joanna Page, who plays Stacey in Gavin and Stacey. Her accent is proper Swansea, but she gets away. She can be absolutely filthy, say really filthy things and get away with it because she's got this lovely, or oh, terribly Swansea and very, very sing-song accent. So there's lots, there's just lots there to mine. And I... Um, one of the things I loved about Us 3 was uh, I got to to set it in Wales in this fictitious town of Coid Kellen, three Welsh girls. And it wasn't so much the fact that they were Welsh, which was a joy, but it was the people around them. So, for example, Catherine's parents are the epitome of Welsh parents. In part one, there's one bit when they're on their way to the airport to take the girls yes. for their holiday. And they're sitting in the car and they're discussing the merits of different diets. And they're talking about the F-plan diet, which it was a real fad in the 80s, and it was all about fibre. And Liz Kelly, Catherine's mum, is talking to her dad at, and, and she says, yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, Hugh, it's baked potatoes morning, noon and night and the woman lost two stone. And it's that sort of observation that I love. And there's the um, the Cardiff priest, the Catholic priest, Father yes. O'Leary, yes. who is based on a real priest, I have to say. But what was amazing about him was he spoke very fast, very, very fast, very Cardiff, and he was the most unlikely priest you could ever meet. He'd be sitting there. I remember once I went to a funeral and he was there and he just, he spoke very staccato. And he'd say, the thing is, the Lord is waiting. I'm not sad. I'm not sad to be here now at this funeral because the Lord is there. He's there waiting on top of the hill. He's waiting with open arms. And it was just, I mean, me and my sister, it was awful because it was a funeral. Me and my sister were literally digging our nails into each other because... And my sister turned to me and she said, he sounds more like a plumber. Like it, She said, he sounds more like he's going to fix your U-bend than he's going to welcome <laughs> you into the arms of the Lord. I had a lot of joy with that when I was uh, recording the audio book, actually. <laughs> let's, let's talk about coffee, okay. because your second object is a coffee pot. Tell me how much yes. caffeine you need a day, Ruth, to keep you going. <laughs> if I don't have a coffee every day, I will get a bad headache, which worries me because it makes me think how how addicted I am to caffeine. But I do love a good, strong black coffee. I also love a good, strong black coffee sometimes with cream. I can't drink instant, which makes me a terrible snob. And do you know what's ironic? I went When I went to university, that was the first time I ever saw um, a coffee plunger because I was brought up on instant coffee. And somebody on my corridor had one of these French cafetiere, you know, a cafetiere. Yeah, of course. And um, I tried a bit of it and I just went, oh, my God, that is disgusting. I will never drink filter coffee. It's disgusting. And look at me now, years later. The mocha uh, pot, though, is something I've only recently... I suppose, become attached to since writing Us 3. And 
I can't remember which came first with it, whether it was in the book or if it was in my daily routine. But there was a chapter which didn't actually make it into the final draft where Judith is so relieved where they've just gone on their holiday and she's so relieved to be away from her not very nice mother and she's just enjoying the fact that she's got freedom she's on holiday with her two best friends and she's making coffee in one of these mocha pots and I love the whole I love describing the whole routine of of filling up the little container and then just waiting for the water to it's quite magical you see when you make coffee in one of those pots because the water just comes up through and it percolates the coffee and suddenly the water has moved from the base up into the jug part of the coffee of the mocha pot and I just think it's really special and magical and there's a beautiful like alchemy about making (laughs) coffee in a mocha pot and when I was writing the first draft I had a real routine going and the coffee became almost like a good luck, uh, like a motif of my day. So I would write for a certain amount of time and then I would have the whole mocha pot coffee routine. And, and yeah, I love it. And I, I've become very attached to it. When you're writing, do you have to have silence? Do you need to have music? I've never been able to write with music going on in the background. Do you know why? I think it's because (laughs) when I was growing up, I'm one of four kids, and me and my brother Mark were in the sort of... Our bedrooms were next, next to each other. And he was five years older than me, still is, miraculously. (laughs) Um, And he is a guitarist. He's a brilliant guitarist. But back then, I was trying to do my schoolwork and Mark was playing like really full-on heavy metal next in the bedroom next to me and I think that just sort of put me off for life which is a shame really because you know he he, he has turned out to be a brilliant guitarist and probably no thanks to me with me banging on his door but his music has always kind of got in the way of my thinking I never could understand when my stepkids were revising for their A-levels and their GCSEs I thought how can they possibly revise with music going on but some people do some people love it don't they have they uh, introduced you to any new music well I did go to Glastonbury with my two stepdaughters once but this was going back a fair few years now I think it was 2005 and it's the only time I've ever been to Glastonbury and never to be repeated I mean I I absolutely hated it I was filming Nighty Night at the time and we had been given these VIP passes so I thought oh great if it's VIP it'll be flushing toilets and it'll be nice clean uh, accommodation Oh, my goodness. So I got two two tickets for my stepdaughters who were teenagers. They, they were like sort of about 20 and 18, I think, then. And uh, it was just awful. And I, I got there on the Saturday night, uh, met them. It was very, very muddy. It was a, a really muddy year. And uh, I had a really good night's sleep in the tent, didn't see any music that night, woke up in the morning, heard the Yeovil brass band rehearsing, and... Uh, just 
decided to leave. I couldn't stand it. So that's the only music I heard. But no, so trying to share a musical experience with <laughs> my stepkids, that didn't really work out very well. <laughs> is, there, is there anything, do you think, that, that people would be surprised about with regards to, to your kind of cultural input? Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Certainly with music, I I mean, I love folk. But the thing that I always remember my husband being really shocked when he found this out about me, I really love Planet of the Apes movies. Okay. What, the old school ones from the 60s well, or the new oh, remakes? Well, any really. I would always opt to watch when, like, if we were on a flight or something and there was a Planet of the Apes film and we were talking about what we're going to watch, I go, oh, I'm going to watch the Planet That's of the Apes. That's so was, random. <laughs> So you don't like Planet of the Apes? I do. I said, I think it's from my childhood when there was the the kindly one who, I'm sure she was also Miss Ellie in Dallas. Anyway, I think it's sort of stayed with me and I've always liked Planet And Batman, actually, the Batman movies. Yeah. So your third object, Ruth, a pair of bright pink trainers. Mm. Why? Of all the things that you could have picked, coffee, a country and novels. <laughs> Well, because I like to go for a walk. And when I go for a walk, I do think things through. And I often had, like, recently I was walking. When I say walking, I don't mean going hill walking. I don't mean, like, you know, I'll go, like, maybe four or five K, something like that. And I used to run, but then um, old age hit and uh, I don't run now, but I do walk. And I find that... I think things through a lot, a lot of, and a lot of ideas come through when I when I go for a walk. I think if I just sort of sit still and sit with my laptop all day, I don't really, I don't know. I need to to get things moving a bit. So um, that is why I've picked my trainers because they because going for a walk really does help me air the brain waves. The reason I picked those bright pink ones was they just, I don't know, I just thought they were very happy. They just made me smile. Do the Welsh as, as a nation like to wear colour? That colour is an important, you know, a kind of flamboyance or, or is there a kind of, oh, that's a bit too fancy? It's hard to generalise well, about an entire nation, but... Well, I know, but I would say we have got probably the best flag in the oh, world. Oh, the flag is strong. Yeah, the flag, the is, flag is very strong. I mean, you yeah. know, green, red and white. And we've got a dragon. I mean, come on. Dragons are good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think we, we do like colour because because we've got a colourful flag. Now, here's a little a little interesting bit of information. It's not that interesting, but it's a bit of information. Uh, Nessa has a tattoo of a dragon on her right arm. And there's one episode in series one where, because it's a transfer, my my I haven't really got a tattoo. Um, and <laughs> in one scene, and it's in it's when the the Welsh contingent go to Essex to meet Gavin's family. Yes. And I think it's episode three in series one. And Nessa is talking to Mick at the bar, and he's asking if she drives, and she says. Uh, I don't, Mick, which is a shame because I love a good ride. And um, the, if you look at her tattoo, one of the dragon's legs is missing. So, wow. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's some so real... So for the observant Gavin yes. and Stacey fan, yeah. they might have noticed that. 
That is an exclusive. I don't think that's ever come out there before. I don't think that's ever come out there before. Someone may have spotted it in the past, though. Do you seamlessly transcend both worlds? You can easily just script writing and novel writing. I don't know. I mean, I think from script writing, I think I'm probably quite match fit when it comes to dialogue because yeah, certainly are. Uh, I've had to write it in scripts and and I've had to perform it. It does help for me to be able to, when I'm putting dialogue into a novel, to be able to say it out loud and to, to perform it, I suppose, to find out whether it, whether it rings true, because sometimes dialogue can look fine on the page, but then when you actually hear it, 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 it doesn't necessarily work. So that's been a help. But then by the same token, I'm not really sure about, sometimes plot frightens me. Thinking, oh my goodness, and and all I can do is let the plot come from character. And I think if the character is true, then the story will kind of come out of that. I also have to be very careful. I don't just do pages of dialogue in a novel because I think you want to. (laughs) That's the joy of 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 it of that medium is that you can go inside the heads of the characters and not have to, you know, and, and and. find out what they're thinking or what they're seeing or what they're experiencing. Yeah, it's a, it's a, well, it's a, a privilege to be able to, to write both, really, I guess. Oh, well, you're very good at both. There's no doubt about that. That's very kind. When I found out that uh, there was going to be a necklace involved for a moment, I imagined, <laughs> wow, do you think it'll be like 50 cent? She's got like some giant diamond encrusted <laughs> crucifix that she, she wears while having rap nights in pink trainers. Um, <laughs> But it's, again, something that's very close to your heart and, and also very Welsh as well, isn't it? Your object yes. number four. It's called clogai is the, is the type of jewellery it is. And it's Welsh gold. So it's a tiny little bit of Welsh gold inside a, a silver frame. And it's a sort of teardrop shape. And um, two of my closest friends gave this necklace to me. And I think it was after we did our first... We go away every May... We call ourselves the Merry May Makers, and uh, it's there's five of us. My sister's one of them, and we go and we have a girls' weekend somewhere. We try to be cultural, so we we've been to Paris and Glasgow, and we try to sort of read a book from that area and all this kind of thing. And they gave this to me, I think, after we went on our first trip, and that it was started on my fifty when I turned fifty. We we went to sort of celebrate my 50th, but we kept doing it after that. Haven't gone this year, of course. No, but I no. love this necklace because, I mean, I've, I've got it in between my fingers now and I just love, I do like to sort of chew it sometimes, which is wow. terrible. But uh, it, it's a sort of a, like, almost like a, a, a worry, what do you call it, a worry egg. I, oh. I find myself sort of twiddling with it when I'm thinking or... Oh, I chew on it like that. And sort of when I'm talking, people are going, why are you talking like that? Because I'm chewing my necklace. <laughs> I'm not angry with you. I'm not speaking through <laughs> gritted teeth. At you. Yeah, I'm just, yeah I exactly. Just do that. Um, Ruth, let's go to a passage from your book now. There's from the opening where Catherine is getting ready to go on her big holiday. Let's hear a clip from the audio book now. Catherine looked closer and realised it was a tacky St Christopher charm the kind they sold in the dusty cabinet at the back of the church. "'What do you think of that, Ben?' said Father O'Leary with gleaming eyes, as if he was showing her the Koh-i-Noor diamond. 
is to keep you safe on your halls, announced Hugh. Lovely, declared Liz. Now let's get it on you, shall we? Let it start doing its job. Catherine looked at her mother in disbelief. Tom had tears streaming down his face. It's absolutely beautiful, Karen, he announced. And nobody detected his sarcasm, except Catherine, of course, who stood there resplendent in her khaki money belt and nickel-plated St. Christopher charm that looked more like an SOS medallion, only not as subtle. Hey now, doesn't that look the real deal, declared Father O'Leary. The phone rang in the hall. I'll get it, Catherine screeched, desperate to get out of the kitchen. She leapt into the hallway and grabbed the phone. 5065, she said. Cut, it's Lana. Oh, thank God. Look, the sooner you get here and we bugger off to Greece, the better. My family is actually deranged. My mother has only gone and... Babe, we got a problem. Katrin caught her breath. What's going on? she asked, worried. On the other end of the phone, Lana sighed. It's Judith. She's not fucking coming. That was Us Three, written and read by my guest today, Ruth Jones. It is available to buy and download now. There is a link in the programme notes of this episode. And please share this podcast with everyone you know. Subscribe and even rate us if you can. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. So, the time that it takes to write a novel, is it comparable to writing for TV? Or is it actually a quicker process than writing for TV? (laughs) I think it depends, really, because when you're writing for TV, you, my experience is only really of writing for a, writing a series. So, yeah, time-wise, I think you, you, there's more pressure on you when you're writing for TV because there's more people involved and you've got to film it. Yeah, it, it, I think it takes less time because it has to take less time if you're writing a TV series. Once it's been commissioned, you've got to get on with it. With... Writing a novel, I think it's just that the publishers are, are much kinder and they give you your space. And um, I'm meant to be writing a third novel now, and uh, wow. <laughs> I probably should have. I probably should have done the first draft by now. No, I, I, I'm jesting. But there, there's less pressure in a good way, I think, with novel writing. Brilliant. Um, and lastly, what's the book on your bedside table at the moment? I just recently read Out of Darkness, Shining Light, Patina Gapper. Have you read that? It's about Livingstone, when David Livingstone died and how the, his team brought him back to England. It's, 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 a, it's fictitious, but it's based on, you know, truth. I like an audio book as well. I like to... Um, I listened to To Kill a Mockingbird again recently... And that was read by Sissy Spacek. And I always think it's important who reads the book, isn't it? Yeah. But often with audiobooks, I find you get... It's great when the person is... If it's, an, if it's an autobiography and they are reading their own autobiography, that's... You feel very connected to them. Like with Michelle Obama's autobiography, you just feel like you sort of got to know her... But you know, you asked me, what's my bedtime reading? Yeah. 
I was asked that question when I was at when I went for my interview at Manchester University many years ago. It, they, it was obviously one of their standard questions, like, "What bedtime reading are you doing at the moment?" And I absolutely stumbled, but I did tell the truth, and I said, "Jackie Collins, Hollywood Wives." And how did that go down, Ruth? Terribly. <laughs> I didn't didn't get a place. <laughs> the snobbery and look at that. what what course was that to do that was to do drama right okay and yes I, I, wait a minute i'm just looking back over your career i think you've done rather well in drama haven't you <laughs> just to be clear so oh god thank you so much for hanging out with us today ruth it's been really Aww. really good it's a pleasure it's an absolute pleasure i've really enjoyed myself thank you so much I hope I see your pink trainers running around at some point <laughs> in the future. Go, oh, that's Ruth Jones. How do you know me? Oh, well, look at the trainers. That's what I'm saying. All right, take care, Ruth. Take care. Bye, bye, bye. Before I Met You by Lisa Jewell. Set between 1990s and 1920s London, this is the story of Arlette and her granddaughter Betty who chooses to give up university and the life that comes with it so she can care for her dying grandmother. But after Arlette passes, an unknown name in her will sends Betty on an exciting path of discovery. Elizabeth had had to endure all sorts of nonsensical after-school dance classes in order to get her mother to buy her interesting shoes. Slivers of flesh-coloured leather with silky ribbons for ballet and chunky-heeled shoes with buttoning straps for flamenco and jazz. But never anything in red silk. Surely, she thought to herself, surely anyone capable of owning a pair of shoes that magnificent must be halfway decent. A rich detective story, the audiobook edition of Before I Met You, is available to download now.